This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. They're some of our favorites. Today, we have one of our regular features brought to us by Stephen Rosiniak. This time, his nephew Paul is reading his story for us. The story is entitled... God bless you too, Santa. There was a boring regularity to life on the floors. The residents of this nursing home didn't expect nor welcome change, but at Christmas time, everything did change. In one year, something happened that two teenagers will never forget. Christmas was just days away. Decorations abound and a steady stream of holiday tunes quietly playing in the background only added to the joyful atmosphere. Staff members hummed while performing their duties, and the residents, well, they were drawn into the excitement. A surprise visitor was about to make this day even better. The residents loved children. Their visits, especially around the holidays, proved magical. Suddenly, even the grouchiest senior became agreeable. Kids brought out the very best in everyone on the floors. On this afternoon, a children's choir was scheduled to perform, and they had promised to bring with them a special guest. Who could it be, they wondered. By early afternoon, everybody knew the answer. Santa Claus was coming to town. And so they waited, and they became children again. A giddy sense of excitement filled these old kids as they began asking the important questions. What will they sing? Is Santa really coming? And most important of all, do you think he'll bring cookies? Later that afternoon, and as promised, a children's choir burst forth into the day room singing a spirited rendition of Jingle Bells. For the next hour, audience members were treated to so many of their favorite carols, and when the final words to We Wish You a Merry Christmas were being sung, a thunderous ho, ho, ho reverberated throughout the room. A well-padded and very youthful-looking Santa Claus arrived, and he had a large tray of assorted holiday cookies. The choir joined Santa as he mingled with his audience, stopping often to give and receive hugs. When it was time to feed his reindeer, a nurse asked if he'd visit with the bedridden patients. Of course, he said, and he did just that. Margaret was confined to her hospital bed, and yet, on this day, she was just another excited little girl awaiting Santa. She heard the choir outside her room, but was thrilled when a booming, ho, 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 echoed from her doorway. With failing eyes, she saw his silhouette. Santa, she whispered. Approaching her bedside, and in his pretend Santa voice, he called out, Merry Christmas, Margaret, adding, And what do you want for Christmas, little girl? Several members of Santa's holiday entourage smiled because they knew Margaret's nurse had already asked this same question, and they already knew her answer. With a twinkle in her eyes, she quietly said, I want a kiss from you, Santa. Laughter filled the room, and all eyes were quickly upon him, curious to see his reaction. The laughing stopped when Santa gently took Margaret's hand in his own, bent down, and kissed her. Merry Christmas, he said. Softer now, but still in his pretend voice. Merry Christmas, Santa, she replied. A smile appeared upon her wrinkled face as tears welled up in her tired old eyes. Santa lingered for another moment, and then, while still holding her hand, he quietly said, now in his own voice, God bless you, Margaret. God bless you too, Santa, she whispered back. The sounds of muffled sobs suddenly filled the room. Fortunately, the nurse reminded Santa that he had other patients to visit 
and so he moved on. Little did he know it was time for someone else to be moving on also. Santa's group visited every bedridden patient, and afterwards, he decided on one last stop. He asked his nurse escort if he could say goodbye to Margaret. Struggling to find the right words, she told him that Margaret had died soon after he'd left her room. She said that in her final moments, Margaret spoke of being blessed by Santa, and of course, that he had kissed her. The nurse reassured him that when the end came, Margaret was content and that he was the reason why. Santa thanked the nurse for telling him and then quickly left the floor. Nobody would want to see Santa Claus cry. I worked at this nursing home where the elderly lived and in the end they died. I'll never forget Santa's visit. He rarely set foot on the floors. Instead, he remained downstairs working as a part-time dishwasher. He made a pretty good Santa Claus though. We were both still kids on that afternoon all those years ago. Since then, my brother Paul and I have come a long way. And thanks to Stephen Rosiniak for that beautiful story. And we can picture in our heads uh, that scene, that final scene. And also, imagine hearing that news uh, that you'd put a smile on someone's face just before they died. And what a beautiful thing to do. Probably the most formidable thing that happened in my life in high school well, actually, by far the most formidable thing that happened was dating a girl who worked at a nursing home. And, of course, because she was there, I was there. And I just got to know these folks, these, these, these older people who many of them didn't have family visit, uh, didn't have family left. Everybody had died. Uh, and just being with them and, and spending time with them uh, and then watching them pass after having developed relationships with them, uh, it, it made me different than the other kids. Stephen Rosiniak's story, Margaret's story, and for so many caregivers across this country, their stories too, here on Our American Stories. And now it's time for the Why Minutes with Lindsay Marie. The Why Minutes, because why matters. If today were your last, what would you do? Tucson resident Chris Lamb wanted to spend the rest of his days making people smile. He had three brain tumors, was partially blind, and slightly paralyzed on his right side. But that didn't stop him from getting up early five days a week, heading to a busy intersection, and smiling and waving at everyone as they passed. Rain, sleet, snow, or shine. When Chris was asked why he did it, he answered, I just wanted to make a difference. And what a difference he made. Commuters routinely stopped to chat with him, including one man who was having a particularly bad day. Chris recalled, they end up laughing their butts off for over five minutes. One woman even called Chris her guardian angel. She said that seeing him out there made her feel good because she knew he was doing it to make others feel better. But the smile campaign wasn't just making others feel better. According to Chris's wife, it kept him alive. After being diagnosed with cancer, he decided to shake up his routine trip to the convenience store. He started smiling at everyone he passed. And something interesting happened. Everyone smiled back. Thus, the smile campaign was born. He was told he only had a few years left to live, but that was over 10 years ago. If today isn't your last day, try shaking up your routine. Smile at everyone you pass, because you never know whose life you could be changing, including your own. The Why Minutes, because why matters.
And we continue here on Our American Stories. And we broadcast out of a small college town called Oxford, Mississippi, about an hour south of Memphis, Tennessee. We're a bit spoiled in this part of the country when it comes to food, especially barbecue. Every once in a while, we like to get out of the studio and hit the road to track down some of the finest eats in the South. Here's Jesse. Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi is one of those places that instantly takes you back to a time and place that stays original in some of the best ways possible. Pulled pork, tamales, fried chicken, and unforgettable, subtle barbecue sauce. It all started here in 1924, founded by Abraham Davis. I was hoping you'd ask me questions. Okay. I'll try to do that. I'm not as good as my dad. Sure. This is Pat Davis, Abraham's grandson, and the current owner of Abe's Barbecue. Well, my grandfather was an immigrant from Lebanon. Came over around 1900. He was uh, 14 years old, and he came with his two younger siblings. That was it. In the bottom of a, a freighter, I guess, or with the cows and the goats and in the bottom he would go upstairs and get food and bring it down to his younger brother sister then he somehow got to north mississippi i know i don't know how that happened um as he got a little bit older he started peddling to the uh, farm workers on horseback he'd take them linen and socks dresses just different things that i'll i've heard this from my grandmother and, and my father in 1924, he started what name's barbecue. It was Delta Inn, but it was actually just a, a barbecue shack, a one-room deal on 4th Street and Florida. That was the intersection. Um, sometimes in the, I guess it was in the 40s, the high, that was the main drag that he was on. They, they moved it to where we are now. The main drag came sort of like a bypass. So he moved from the 4th Street location to this location here. And they built this building. This is the second building on this lot. It was built in 1959. So we've been in this building since 1959, on this lot since the mid-40s, from what I've heard. Located at the intersection of highways 49 and 61, this is one of several places in the state of Mississippi believed by many to be Robert Johnson's legendary crossroads, which brings in tourists by the busload. People from all over the world. I mean, it really is amazing to see the folks that do come through. Clarksdale isn't just a tourist attraction. It's a real place, and so is Abe's Barbecue. Pat Davis was raised in this restaurant when his dad was in charge. I mean, he would leave me here with um, two guys back, I guess I would have been... In the early 70s, I was 11, 12 years old, and, and we'd all, they'd run, they took care of me like, you know, uncles, and we'd run the place by ourselves. This was in the afternoon when Dad would go home take a break. He would work in the morning and come back in the evening. It's not uncommon to see a customer loading up on a case of Abe's barbecue sauce. They sell it at the counter, and you can buy it online at abesbarbecue.com. It makes for some of the best pulled pork sandwiches you've ever had. We cook with, um, Pecan wood. Probably use pecan all the time, you know, like a hickory tree. And it, cause it's hard to get hickory here. We do have a, a lot of pecans. We have pecan orchards, so it's easier to get pecan wood. 
Um, and I think that the difference, I mean, you could cook barbecue at your house over a smoker. I can cook it in my house over a smoker. That's basically the same, you know. But the barbecue sauce is where it's different, I think. Our sauce is on a tangy side. It's not sweet. Um, I mean, people just tend to gravitate towards it. They like it. Well, most, most do. And I have people that don't like it. I had a guy come in a couple of months ago from Memphis, and he's never been through here, ate it. I didn't like it, didn't like it at all. So I didn't. Even, I just didn't charge him. So he left. Promise, he came back within like 10 days. He said, man, I don't know what it is. It hit me. He said, a couple of days ago, I got to get one more of those things. He said, he came back and paid for the one he ate. I didn't charge him for it, too. Yeah, it was, it was a pretty cute story. Abe's also has some incredible tamales. It's a staple here in Mississippi from generations of Mexican labor. They made them and sold them in little push buggies. Daddy did tell me that, down on the city streets. And um, I guess maybe when they went home during the off-season, people missed them. So my grandfather apparently learned how to make it from someone, and he makes we make them now. Well, we don't actually make them now. We have someone make them for us, and we cook them here. We get them here. But we have made them uh, back in the mid-'70s to in about the middle-'80s. But it's, it was a job. And then... Um, the guy that was making them back here with us couldn't make them anymore, so we just found someone to make them for us. Mississippi being the clash of cultures that it sometimes is, the founder of Abe's did the right thing. A group of young black students were sent, or were coming to restaurants, and if they came to Abe's and, and grandfather let them in. Most other restaurants did not let them in, and... I think the other Lebanese family at Rest Haven let them in their restaurant. And Dad said they were the only two restaurants in town that weren't in a lawsuit. I think we get along really well in this town. You know, people may say, you know, it's a lot of racism. I mean, I'm sure you have your pockets of trouble. But overall, Clarksdale has a a really good-hearted community, all of them, you know. I've moved off before. But it's not home. I mean, you come back, it's still, I can go to Walmart, man, I, I just love to see people, hey, 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 you know everybody. You know, you, you know them or you know somebody in the family. Wintertime um, is, is good because we've got a lot of hunters coming in and uh, family, families coming back for Thanksgiving with their families, you know, to be with their parents or grandparents. So the holidays are good, hunting season's good. We have downtime when the farmers start getting in the field here in another week or two. Well, they would like to be there another week or two. We'll have rain for another week or two. But um, when the farmers start planting, we slow down because they're, they're kind of can't. And then it's slow, it gets better for us in the summertime because they're sort of laid back on the farming part. Then when they start harvesting, we get slow again. And back to that regular cycle, hunting season starts back up and holidays start piling on, so we pick back up again. Yeah, business has been good. Uh, I think tourism has been a boom for this place. If it wasn't for tourism, I think it'd be a lot different. But that's what I'm seeing. I mean, I, you know, when it first started 20 years ago, I, mean, I said, why would people want to come here, you know? And, but they started, and they haven't stopped, and it's gotten more and more. Every year we have a, uh, well, we've had it for the last, I'm saying like 20 years, a Juke Joint Festival in April. And... They send a group, four or five bands to, that play at different intervals outside, and we have people outside. Well, a couple of years ago, it was raining. The first group went outside, started raining, they had to move inside. Well, the room that they came to was only, they had to put their band in, was, was probably 
14 by 24, and it was in the, at the end of the restaurant. Well, they still had to, uh, for some reason, they couldn't uh, modify their amps. They had to leave everything on like it was outside. It was the loudest packed house I've ever seen in my life. I mean, people were standing up in this room. Everything was full, just stand-up room only. And, and the band was so loud, I don't know how they could even, the people, that, they, you couldn't get away from the noise because they, it was just too small of a, an area. And that's, that, that was unique when it happened to us. Uh, we don't have that much happen to, like that. We had no other plan. There's no other way to, to let them play. So we had four bands playing in here at full throttle in a small room. Visit Abe's Barbecue in Clarksdale, Mississippi at the crossroads of U.S. 49 and 61 for Our American Stories. I'm Jesse Edwards. And great job as always, Jesse. And you were listening to Pat Davis. And he's the grandson of Abraham who started Abe's Barbecue. And it's an institution here in northern Mississippi. Everyone thinks it's the best. Well, actually, I do. And everybody here argues about what the best barbecue is. And, well, in this one... We don't do a lot of opinions on this show, but I'm right. And because it's Lebanese, probably, I have a little bit of bias. And by the way, Lebanese people found their way up and down the Mississippi River. So too did Jews. And that was to trade, to peddle, to make a buck, and to call this great new place, America, their homes. Abe's Barbecue, the story of a family business, a multi-generational family business, here in the Mississippi Delta. This is Our American Story. continue here with our American stories and as you know we love to tell all kinds of story particularly stories about history and our this day in history story today in 1830 Emily Dickinson was born today we have Brooke Seinhauser the program director at the Emily Dickinson Museum telling the story Emily Dickinson lived in Amherst Massachusetts all her life So she's a figure who the town of Amherst claims with pride, I think. She was born here in the homestead, which is actually where I'm sitting right now, which is one of two houses that comprise the Emily Dickinson Museum today. 
and the homestead was built by her grandfather in 1813. Um, so after he builds the homestead in 1813, the family is settled here, her Emily Dickinson's parents are living here, and she's in fact born here in 1830. There comes a point in her life, she's about nine, where the family moves up the street, so they are actually living in a different house from the time she's nine to the time she's about 24 and then they move back to this house. So it's right here on Main Street, if you can kind of envision downtown Amherst at all. We're right in the center of things, and it allowed the Dickinson family sort of a place of, um, of visibility. This was one of the first brick houses in town. Um, it's a very attractive house, sort of risen up on a on a... Uh, hill a little bit. So certainly this is one of the prominent families in the town of Amherst. So Emily is born to uh, her, a father and mother, uh, Edward Dickinson and Emily Norcross Dickinson, and Edward, her father, was a lawyer. These are very intellectual people, the Dickinsons. They are uh, very, very much a tight-knit family. Emily is a middle child, there's a wonderful portrait of the three children when she's about nine. Um, and she, you can in fact see in that image, it's an oil painting, that she is a redhead, which is actually not something that people have always known about her when they come to see us. And a really neat thing that you can do actually is go and visit the Amherst College archive and find there a lock of her hair, which is in fact very red. Emily grew up in this beautiful home. She went to school down the street in her younger years and then later attended Mount Holyoke Seminary, now known as Mount Holyoke College. She writes, I love this seminary and all the teachers are bound strongly to my heart by ties of affection. And that can be kind of a contrast to what we hear sometimes about this year, which we, we know was also challenging for her. The, the seminary was just that. It was a school for religious education, and it was run by a woman named Mary Lyon, who really is kind of a pioneer of women's education, but who was also a congregationalist in an era of revivals. And so there was a tremendous amount of pressure on Emily Dickinson to um, participate in one of these revivals that was going on. And religion, if you've ever read any any Emily Dickinson, you know that there are some major theological questions that she's grappling with all her life, uh, having to do with, you know, the presence of God and immortality and heaven. Um, and she's definitely working in sort of a Christian idiom, but she's always, always questioning it. She writes, I think during this period, she writes, it's not, uh, it's not now too late, so my friends tell me, so my offended conscience whispers, but it is hard for me to give up the world. Later on, you know, she ends up writing a lot about this in her poetry, and one of my favorite poems that she, that she's thinking about this idea, she ends with, narcotics cannot still the tooth that nibbles at the soul, um, which is just, I, I just love the idea that um, these sort of big religious questions are kind of gnawing at her like a, like a mouse or something. She only spent a year at the seminary, but during that time made many friends with whom she continued to keep up a letter correspondence. She writes these incredible letters. Today about a thousand of them exist, and uh, that's maybe estimated to be only about a tenth of the total number of letters that she produced in her lifetime, which is shocking, I think, in this day and age when we're very used to being able to just shoot off an email, but she was, um, she was writing these 
really artistic and, and thought-provoking letters that provide a lot of documentary evidence about her life and her friendships, her relationship relationships. She comes back home to Amherst, and she she never, you know, she may be done being a student, but she never ceases in her life uh, being really hungry and curious for knowledge and uh, information. She's a voracious reader, and the Dickinson Family Library, between the two houses there were a couple thousand books, and she was just reading it all. Um, her father, who was sometimes a challenge figure in her life. Sometimes she describes him as being what we might think of as overbearing, but there are also wonderful tender exchanges between the two. She said, father buys me many books and begs me not to read them for fear they boggle the mind. Actually, I think it's joggle the mind, which is an even better word. So, you know, her favorite authors included George Eliot, Elizabeth Barrett Browning, the Brontes. She's also reading the news and newspapers and periodicals with relish. Uh, they, the family is very well connected and networked and um, a family friend, Sam Bowles, works for the Springfield Republican, which is one of the finest papers in the country at the time. And he's a constant correspondent of Emily Dickinson's. She's also reading the Atlantic Monthly that we know the family was bringing in. And that is a nice connection to a figure I should talk a bit about, um, whose name is Thomas Wentworth Higginson. So Thomas Wentworth Higginson is, uh, in his own right, a really interesting figure. He's an abolitionist. He uh, fights in the Civil War. Um, he's also just the sort of lodestar touchstone for every sort of 19th century literary figure in and around Boston. And he publishes something in the Atlantic Monthly when Emily is 31, basically inviting writers to submit their work to him so that he can provide them with some feedback. Now, we haven't talked much about how Emily Dickinson becomes a writer. Um, her writing was praised in her in her school school years, but really there's this period of intense productivity as a as a poet that happens for her from her mid twenties into her mid thirties, about a decade in which she produces about eleven hundred of the poems that we have today. The poems that we have today total one thousand seven hundred eighty nine. So that just tells you what an intense decade that was, and so she's sort of in the middle of that period of productivity when she reaches out to Thomas Wentworth Higginson about a month after she sees this post in the Atlantic Monthly soliciting young writers. And so she writes him and basically says, can you tell me if my verse breathes? Which is of course a wonderfully poetic way to ask, you know, what do you think of my work? And that, that is the start right there of a correspondence that lasts through the rest of her life. Although she had this connection with this influential publicist, she only published about 10 poems during her lifetime. Why didn't Emily Dickinson try to publish more when she was alive? Well, <laughs> we don't know. She, she seems to have really had, again, conflicting thoughts about publication. She is 
at the same time kind of you know soliciting advice and criticism like she did with Thomas Wentworth Higginson or like she did with her sister-in-law Sue who lived next door to whom she sends more than 250 poems. The idea being that she's sharing this very private part of herself uh, but she's actually sharing it pretty broadly with those who know her. And what a way to ask a question by the way of of whether your work as a writer is any good, can you tell me if my verse breathes? Just beautiful. And why didn't she publish more when she was alive? And by the way, we'd have the same question for Harper Lee, for J.D. Salinger, and so many other writers. When we come back, more of the story of Emily Dickinson, a distinctly American story, a great American literary story, here on Our American Story. Turn to the story of Emily Dickinson here on Our American Stories, and Faith is bringing it to us. And she had a good conversation with Brooke Seinhauser, the program director at the Emily Dickinson Museum in Amherst, Massachusetts. We had learned in the last segment that Emily Dickinson had only published 10 poems in her lifetime. We return to Brooke talking about Dickinson's love of poetry and her battle with the idea of publication. She was very serious about poetry. She she wrote um, in one poem, I reckon when I count it all, first poets, then the sun, then summer, then the heaven of God, and then the list is done. So, you know, poetry really came first for her. And while she, you know, she also writes things to her sister-in-law, like, if I could make you and Austin proud someday, a long way off, t'would give me taller feet, which is a, a very nice thought. But then she also writes things like publication was as foreign to me as firmament to Finn or, you know, publication is the auction of the mind of man. So it's clear that she's grappling with this all her life. And I do think it's a really interesting thought exercise to imagine if Emily Dickinson had tried to publish in her lifetime. Her poetry and, you know, her her correspondence with Thomas Wentworth Higginson kind of illustrates this, that her poetry did not quite look like poetry of her time, of her contemporary moment. She's doing something a bit different. And that really has to do with Emily Dickinson's incredible vocabulary. Her lexicon was her best friend. She was mining that source to be able to pull together really concise, succinct poems that are able to somehow make tangible very sort of shared human experiences that we often have a really hard time describing. So, you know, Hope is the Thing with Feathers is a, is a, is a very popular poem that she writes. 
Um, and here she's managed to conjure up this image of, of a bird um, that, that signifies hope. Or because I could not stop for death, he kindly stopped for me, another, another famous line of hers. Her poetry has this kind of startling quality to it, both again because of that vocabulary and her penchant for putting her finger right on the, on the pulse of a, of a big idea. And then also she's, uh, she's choosing to play with slant rhyme. She doesn't quite make each perfect rhyme. Let's see, an example of that would be like, I dwell in possibility a fairer house than prose, more numerous of windows, superior for doors. So prose and doors are the slant rhyme there. You know, she she doesn't title her poetry. Um, her her poetry is um, littered with sort of capital letters and dashes, and so the you know her poetry actually physically kind of looks different. And then another thing to note is that her writing process is a fascinating one. Again, I think because of this love for words, she was providing basically variant word choices in the in the marginalia of her manuscripts, of her poems, where basically she, she'll mark a word with a, an asterisk in the body of the poem, and then you're meant to look along those margins and find the, the other words that you could swap in. So not only do her manuscripts actually just kind of look challenging, they, are, they provide a unique challenge to her editors later on. Emily Dickinson had a very full childhood and early life. But at one point, it is widely known that she became reclusive. While there is much speculation, the reason why is unknown. During the time that she stepped back from the world, it turned out to be her most productive time of writing. She had chosen a different path than many women of her time. She was never married, nor did she have children, which gave her ample amount of time to write. She was different. She played with dark themes that maybe to some would be alarming, such as her poem, I Felt a Funeral in My Brain. It goes, I felt a funeral in my brain, and mourners to and fro kept treading, treading, till it seemed that sense was breaking through. And when they all were seated, a service, like a drum, kept beating, beating, till I thought my mind was going numb. And then I heard them lift a box and creak across my soul with those same boots of lead again. Then space began to toll as all the heavens were a bell and being but an ear and I in silence some strange race wrecked solitary here. And then a plank in reason broke and I dropped down and down and hit a world at every plunge and finished knowing then. Emily Dickinson died at the age of just 55 in May of 1886, from what they believe might have been kidney failure. So after she dies, Lavinia Dickinson, Emily's younger sister, essentially is going through her correspondence and her papers to destroy them, which is not an uncommon thing to do in this Victorian period. And she comes across 40 bundles of 20 poems each that had been hand-sewn together, basically into little booklets. It's a form of self-publication, basically. And while Emily Dickinson's family and friends all knew that she was a poet, 
they didn't necessarily know that she was producing at the rate that she was. And these fascicles, as they would come to be called, are, they're really fair copies. They're the closest thing that we get to a final draft that Emily Dickinson produces. And Lavinia said she had a Joan of Arc feeling about them, meaning she was not going to destroy them. She was going to see it through that these poems could reach the, reach the wider world. Lavinia, her sister, takes the poems to her friend Mabel Loomis Todd, and then to Thomas Wentworth Higginson. Together, the two of them publish the poems by December of 1890. It was incredibly successful. The reasons it was successful are um, multiple. One, Emily Dickinson's an amazing poet, and um, hopefully those early readers felt that way too. But also, Mabel Loomis Todd and Thomas Wentworth Higginson did some significant editing to her poetry. They did change around some words to, you know, to um, to achieve rhymes here and there. They gave the poems titles. You know, they they basically kind of shaved down some of the edgier parts of her in order to make these poems, you know, palatable for a consuming public. And while today, you know, editors are, you know, trying to do exactly the opposite, they, these early editors, I think, knew what they were doing and can be credited very much with making sure that Emily Dickinson comes to the wider world. We might never have heard of her if they hadn't done what they had done. Fast forward now, here we are in this wonderful world of computers and technology and and digitization. And so this is really what I like to call the golden age of being a Dickinson reader, because we can actually see her manuscripts the way that she intended for us to see them. We can actually go online and see the digitized versions of these manuscripts and look at the way she's arranged her words on the page and look at the kinds of paper that she was using. In some ways, she's a poet who's as visual as she is um, in love with her words. She is arranging them on oftentimes sort of ephemeral scraps of paper that she might have had in her pocket when she's baking. There's a chocolate wrapper, a French chocolate wrapper that has a poem on the back. There's an invitation that she received as a girl to a taffy pull from a young young man. She saved that and I think it was maybe 20 15 or 20 years later, she writes a poem on it on the back about the passing of time. So those are the kinds of incredible, rich details to her writing practice that can be lost when her poems are just translated into, you know, typeface. So being able to actually engage with her manuscripts is such a, we're, we're living in such a privileged moment, I think, we who are, who are Dickinson fans. At the end of the day, this person who we really adore. You know, we have visitors who come from all over the world on pilgrimages to see her house, and that's amazing. But at the end of the day, she was a flesh and blood person. She had her faults and she had her idiosyncrasies, certainly. That's the that's the person whose story we try to tell here at the museum. So this is a great, a great poem that I'll share. I felt my life with both my hands to see if it was there. I held my spirit to the glass to prove it possibler. I turned my being round and round and paused at every pound to ask the owner's name for doubt that I should know the sound. I judged my features, jarred my hair, I pushed my dimples by and waited. If they twinkled back, conviction might of me. I told myself, take courage, friend. 
that was a former time, but we might learn to like the heaven as well as our old home. Emily played with ideas of both life and death. Perhaps she was ahead of her time and her ideas were too jarring for some. But nonetheless, her poetry went on to have a great impact on 20th century poetry. I'm Faith Buchanan, and this is Our American Stories. And great job as always, Faith, and a special thanks to Brooke Seinhauser, the program director at the Emily Dickinson Museum. And my goodness, what a story. I mean, imagine the sister of the family discovering these bundles of poems. And what a love story, the sister just loving on her sister and getting that work, work out for posterity. The world's a better place for that love. Emily Dickinson's story, here on Our American Stories. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories, and we tell stories about everything here on this show, from the arts to sports, and from business to history, and everything in between, including your stories. Send them to OurAmericanNetwork.org. That's OurAmericanNetwork.org. Aside from Ho, 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 and several songs by Perry Como and Johnny Mathis, perhaps no other sound says Christmas more than the ring of a Salvation Army red kettlebell. The Red Kettle has been an American icon for 125 years. From Thanksgiving to Christmas Eve, the ubiquitous buckets can be found outside thousands of storefronts in small towns and big cities across this country. They can even be found on your TV, appearing in dozens upon dozens of movies. But for many Americans, this is all we know about the Salvation Army until now. In the empire of the young Queen Victoria, the story of the Salvation Army is conceived within the heart of a young boy named William Booth. Here's Greg Hengler with this story. William Booth's father, Samuel, built houses in Nottingham, England for the children of the Industrial Revolution. When in 1843 his business collapsed, it was the end of his world. Within months, Samuel was dead, leaving his family in ruin. 13-year-old William Booth had to drop out of school and commenced what would be an education in poverty. His primary classroom was the pawn shop, where he had taken work as an apprentice. Here's Professor Roger Green, a longtime member and scholar of the Salvation Army. Pawnbroking business in England in that day was a very, very difficult business because pawnbroking was people brought in their goods from their home and sold their goods to have a little bit of money to put bread on the table. And he knew, too, that many people were coming in and selling a little bit of what they had in their home or pawning off a little bit of what they had in their home, not in order to put bread on the table for the children, but in order to buy more alcohol for that evening. Handkerchiefs were pawned first. Wedding rings came last. Nottingham's urban district extends into rural Derbyshire, where Catherine Mumford was born. 
From a young age, she displayed an unusually intense nature. When she was nine years old, she saw a drunk hauled through the streets to the police station, taunted by a mob. She was unwilling to let him walk alone and be humiliated, so she ran and walked beside him. Here's Professor Pamela Walker, author of Pulling the Devil's Kingdom Down, The Salvation Army in Victorian Britain. She suffered from a number of different illnesses. It's hard to know in modern terms what we would call those things, but she had a curvature of her spine, which she suffered with her whole life, and she was sometimes bedridden for long periods of time. So she read a lot. She read Methodist magazines and other religious works by a number of leading Methodist theologians. She was reading them at a very young age. She read the Bible every day. By the time she was 12, I think she'd read it cover to cover eight times. And it made for a very quiet childhood, a very studious childhood, and often, I think, a very lonely one. In the Booth household, William had heard very little about the Bible or God until a neighbor took the 15-year-old boy to church to hear the visiting American minister, James Cohey, preach for six weeks. William was inspired. For the next two years, he would often wander off into the meadow and try preaching to himself. He was always disappointed with the results, though. The preachers he heard were powerful and spoke with a fiery conviction. It was obvious they believed what they were preaching with all their heart. William, on the other hand, was not sure what he believed. Even though he had now been going to church for two years, William was still a spectator. That was the case until Booth strolled into his Bible class. The teacher opened with the words, A soul dies every minute. For some reason, These words penetrated right into William's heart. Shortly after, when a friend persuaded William to join him in a mission in Nottingham's poorest district, William stepped right into his natural space. After visiting the poor and the sick, William would go out into the grimy streets, stand on top of a box and preach. Poor women would bring their own chairs. Some ignored him, others cursed him. In 1849, William left Nottingham for London, working more than 12 hours a day, six days a week, as an apprentice at another pawnbroker's shop. It was here where William met Catherine Mumford. A month later, they were engaged. Here's Salvation Army member and historian, Professor Gordon Moyles. Uh, Catherine Booth was the thinker. Uh, She grew up in a home where she was self-educated, or home-educated, and she read a lot of theology books. Uh, William was a doer. William was a doer all his life. William was an activist. At the age of 22, William left pawnbroking for good to pursue what he felt was God's calling as an evangelist. On June 16th of 1855, Catherine and William were married. Three years passed until William became the preacher of a Methodist church while Catherine became pregnant with their third child. Feeling restless, Catherine began to visit the families of heavy drinkers two nights a week in the slums. It was at this time where she too would have a life-changing encounter with an American preacher. Here again is Pamela Walker. In 1859, 
Phoebe Palmer, who is an American holiness teacher and preacher, came to England. And it was a big event for Catherine. She was already well known to Catherine through her writing. It also occasioned a lot of debate in the English press because here was this American and a woman and she's preaching. William had plenty to do inside the church, but it was the people outside, the people who never dreamed of setting a foot inside a church, who really concerned him. Booth's outreach had become known by the locals as the converting shop. When members of his church attempted to restrict his wider ministry, Catherine urged William to resist and become an independent evangelist. At a critical moment when a motion to limit Booth's ministry was put, Catherine shouted from the balcony, Never. William looked around to see his wife being escorted towards the door. William stood up, waved his hat in the air as a salute to his wife, and walked deliberately out the door. Catherine was standing on the steps. He hooked her arm in his, and they headed down the street together. And when we come back, we'll continue with the story of William and Catherine Booth, without whom there would not be a Salvation Army. More after these messages. And we return to our American stories and the story of William and Catherine Booth and the story of the Salvation Army. Let's pick up where we last left off. William Booth's days of being a pastor were over. He was a 32-year-old man with a wife and now four small children to feed. He returned to the insecure life of a traveling evangelist, preaching in rented warehouses, ragged tents, and in the open air. He got an occasional odd job and spent the money he earned on soup bones and two-day-old bread to feed his family. In July 1865, William was, in a sense, still looking for his life's work. The Booths were living in London and now had six children. On July 2nd, William set out for an eight-mile walk to London's East End to preach at a tent meeting. As he walked, he was shocked by what he saw. For liquor, Parents neglected their children. Girls sold their virtue. Men became criminals. A man could get drunk for a penny. Five-year-olds were commonly seen passed out in the doorways. It was this area that drew William Booth like a magnet. Booth burst into the house, swept Catherine into a hug and shouted, Kate, I've found my destiny. Here's the great-grandson of William and Catherine Booth, Colonel Bramwell Booth. When my grandfather was 12 or 13, William took him out one evening to the east end of London where he was working and took him into some of the public houses that lined the roads. They came in and found the people were there, many of them drunken. Women were with their little babies and the, the, the situation was really very sad. Of course, these men were out of work, they were poor, they were uneducated and uh, in desperate need. And as they looked at them, William turned to 
Bramwell, William Bramwell, his name was, and he said, Willie, these are our people. These are the people I want you to live for and to bring to Christ. The work was hard and the funds for the operation were near non-existent. Workers were poor, but there were men and women of influence and wealthy philanthropists who came staunchly to the rescue. Checks were written and buildings were loaned free of cost for Booth to preach in or operate soup kitchens. Once inside, crowds of idle and dissolute characters filled the building, but William held their attention. Booth took 80 of the most popular tunes of the time and changed the lyrics to reflect a gospel-centered message. Booth said, why should the devil have all the best tunes? Both William and Catherine would preach, each usually an hour to an hour and a half. Here again is Roger Green and Gordon Moyles. The preaching styles were a bit different. Uh, William Booth was tended to roam on the platform and tended to move on the platform and so forth. Uh, he was a very dramatic preacher, of course. You could see the people drowning. You could see the people reaching their hands above the waves. Catherine Booth, on the other hand, had a very different style of preaching. Catherine tended to preach like a lawyer. Catherine tended to argue her point and make her point very clearly. In fact, the story goes that there was a gentleman who heard Catherine Booth preach. And at the end of the sermon, he turned to his son, a future Archbishop of Canterbury. And he said to his son, If I am ever in trouble with the law, don't get me a lawyer. Get me that woman. When the Christian mission began, those involved wanted to adopt committees in order to enact strict government protocol. Here's Dr. Glenn Horridge, author of The Salvation Army, Origins and Early Days, and Roger Green. William Booth was getting very, very frustrated by the constant talking and the fact that many people wanted to formulate rules about how things should be done rather than actually doing it. And he felt this, was, this had been a problem of many of the other um, organizations that were trying to do good work. Needless to say, William and Catherine Booth were not people who favored committees. They were both quite autocratic by nature. As you come to 1877, some very important decisions were made. And the primarily important decision that was made was to have William Booth totally in charge of the Christian mission. When their 1878 report was drafted, it said, the Christian mission under the superintendence of the Reverend William Booth is a volunteer army. The report was shown to William and his son Bramwell. And Bramwell said, hey, I'm not a volunteer, I'm a regular soldier. And William took the pen in his hand, crossed off the word volunteer, and wrote in instead, the Christian mission is a salvation army. And so the ranks came in, and little by little, the military structure of the Salvation Army developed. Here's Pamela Walker, Glenn Horridge, and UCLA professor Diane Winston, author of the engrossing study, Red Hot and Righteous, The Urban Religion of the Salvation Army. In the 1880s, brass bands were very popular in England. A lot of trade unions had a brass band and workplaces had a brass band. So lots of people knew how to play brass instruments. It was quite a common pastime. In Salisbury, um, the Salvation Army officer decided to use a local Methodist family to play their instruments to drown out the rowdies. 
The Fry family were the first people to do this and they found it very effective. If the, the rowdies started getting too loud, they just bring up their brass brand instruments and start playing and just bring up the tune and bring up the sound of the music and that would just drown out the crowd. And they became very popular and it became a very much a part of the Salvation Army's appeal. And the brass band would stand on the corner, they'd do a testimony, they'd play some music, they'd sing some songs, and that would also just help to draw an audience. William Booth was a man ahead of his time because he really appreciated the value of good publicity. He could have uh, been a great PR man had he gone in a different direction. His credo was attract attention and he told his soldiers and officers to do anything possible to get that attention. Booth really had a sense of marketing and of branding and um, he made sure that people knew who the army was and the uniform was one of the ways to do this. By far, the majority of the Army's officers were very young, and at least half were women. Here again is Gordon Moyles. William Booth always said, you know, my best men are women. And um, in the 1880s, for example, uh, almost 50% and sometimes more than 50% of the officers were women. Here's Salvation Army Major Christine Parkin. William Booth had a rare genius for understanding the needs of young people. He also had this gift for being able to use people um, in a way that made them feel that they were in charge, they were responsible, they were challenged to do something really good for the Kingdom of God. Here's William Booth's granddaughter, Commissioner Catherine Bramwell Booth. Well, I, I do remember one uh, occasion. He was very interested in what we did in the little core, that you might call it a little church, the, the, the group to which we belonged, you see. So he, we, if he was at home, it was important to tell him what, how it had been on Sunday. Well, how do you get on? And, and was there anyone at the penitent form? And, and did you do anything? And, uh, and I said that day, I, yes, yes, Grandpa. And myself, I sang a solo. Oh, we said, how, how, how did you get on? Well, I said, well, I, I did my best. And then he suddenly seemed to be angry with me, he roared at me, and he could, you know, he could shout. And he had a splendid voice. And when he got onto the platform, you know, and he held himself up and shouted. Well, he shouted at me that day. You see, and I was all in a shiver. And he said, your best? What's the good of that, Catherine? You'll never be any good to me in the army if that's all you can do. <laughs> well, I felt dreadful. <laughs> and then he suddenly stopped and changed. He said, you see, dear child, when we believe in God and God helps us, we can do better than our best. And then he opened up all that idea of God being within reach and and, and understanding how we felt. And my goodness, what words when we believe in God and God helps us, we can do better than our best. We're following the story of William and Catherine Booth. And what a forward thinker William was. I mean that more than 50% of the members of his army were women. 
and as he said, my best men or women, and that his wife shared the preaching stage. My goodness, a man ahead of his time. The story of William and Catherine Booth, the story of the Salvation Army, continues after these messages. And we continue here with our American stories and the story of William and Catherine Booth and the story of the Salvation Army. And every once in a while, though the show is entitled Our American Stories, you'll sometimes hear some British voices. And that's because as we look back in time, so many of the important organizations, so many of the important events that happened here in this country were shaped by some of the things that happened across the pond, so to speak. And so we continue with the story of William and Catherine Booth. Among the thousands of recruits, the Army especially prized men and women whose lives had been radically transformed. William Booth told his officers, when you go into a town, search for the worst alcoholic. Go after the woman at the end of a rope. He would rather his meetings were crowded with such people than churchgoers who were not broken by their sin. One of his mottos was, go for souls and go for the worst. Here's Christine Parkin and a couple testimonies of the time. They were able to see it happen before their eyes, really. They saw the little homes transformed because the the father of the household brought a joint of meat home on a Saturday night instead of spending all his money at the pub. And the children started to go to school because there was money. It used to be starvation before they came. Now he brings his wages home to me instead of taking them to the public house. If you want to know what God has done for me, go and ask my poor wife, whom I've beaten in my mad and fury until I've endangered her life and smashed everything I could lay my hands upon. Hear the words of Catherine Booth, Glenn Horridge and Bramwell Booth. We teach that a man cannot be right with God while he is doing wrong to men. In short, decide that holiness means being saved from sin and filled with love to God and man. So important was the message of holiness that in 1870, at the conference of the Christian Mission, William Booth said, Holiness is to us a fundamental truth. It stands to the forefront of our doctrines. The first Salvation Army flag was presented in 1878 and Catherine often explained when she presented flags later on that the red stood for the blood of Jesus Christ which purifies from sin, the blue stands for purity of holiness and the fire of the star was uh, the fire of the Holy Spirit which actively leads his people. The flag and its soldiers were encountering intense opposition. In his play, Major Barbara, committed socialist, master wordsmith, and playwright George Bernard Shaw criticized the Salvation Army for using tainted money to do its work. 
To this, Booth answered, We will wash it in the tears of the widows and the orphans and lay it on the altar of humanity. The media hated the Salvation Army too and continually wrote fictional stories that were successful in inflaming public opinion against them. Booth would tell his very upset son Bramwell, Fifty years from now, it will matter very little how these people treated us. It will matter a great deal how we dealt with the work of God. I don't care what they say about me as long as they say something and announce where I'm preaching. Even Queen Victoria objected to the Salvation Army on the grounds that she should have the only army in England and that all generals should belong to the British Empire. The authorities offered little if no protection, and in many cases they charged the Salvationists with disturbing the peace. In fact, the British Home Secretary pushed a peace-at-any-price policy, and this meant that the results of any legal Salvation Army activity that hooligans turned into a riot were blamed on the Salvation Army. The Home Secretary's logic went thus. If the Salvation Army had not been there in the first place, the peace would not have been disturbed. Here again is Gordon Moyles. When they were charged and sent to jail, uh, they had the option of a fine or, say, 10 days in jail. And you know what they always chose. They chose the 10 days in jail. And they would go to jail for the 10 days. And at the end of the 10 days, the Salvation Army Corps, the whole battalion, would line up, march to the jail, uh, bring out the jailbird, and uh, leave that jailbird dressed in the, in the uh, uniform of, the, uh, of a jailbird, march them back to the citadel, and they would have a great meeting where the person would testify and talk about it and so on. And of course it got publicized in all the newspapers. All the newspapers loved it. Because they now knew they could get away with it, schools of angry and restless young men organized into a group whose stated aim was to destroy the Salvation Army. They called themselves the Skeleton Army. The Skeleton Army didn't confine the harassment just to the streets. They went to and attacked the homes of anyone who sympathized with the organization, smashing windows and hurling dead cats and rats, bricks, stones, tar, rotten vegetables, and sticks into their windows. One army officer named Elijah had his nose broken and face bloodied. And while the riot was going on around him, William Booth asked the bloodied Elijah how the officers were. Elijah replied, the officers will be all right, dead or alive. In the midst of all this, William received the news that one of his first converts, Susanna Beatty, had been killed. She had been pelted with rotten fish and rocks. One of the rocks knocked her off her feet, and as she lay in the street, a thug kicked her hard in the stomach, and she died of internal injuries. The skeleton army was financially and politically supported by breweries, pub owners, and politicians outraged by the army's unorthodox approach. This led to a strange alliance among politicians, hoodlums, and brewery owners, all of whom wanted the Salvation Army to march right out of sight. Here again is Glenn Horridge. Anything that seemed to be deviating from the norm um, has often been ridiculed and attacked. They set themselves up to be different. And so, what better on a Friday night or a Saturday than to jeer at the Salvation Army? During 1882, 
669 Salvation Army soldiers were assaulted. One third of them were women, including 23 children. 60 Salvation Army buildings were seriously damaged. William wrote many letters to Parliament and the police urging them to set aside the peace at any price policy, but it failed to move them. Eventually, 4,000 angry young men from the Skeleton Army descended on a small band of Salvation Army soldiers, pelting them with rocks and tar. When a few officers arrived on the scene, the leader of the Skeleton Army assaulted one of the officers. The man was immediately arrested, and as their leader was dragged away, the Skeleton Army began throwing rocks into the police station and taunting the officers to come out. Finally, the police saw the truth of the matter. It was impossible to ignore the rights of one group of people and allow thugs to roam the streets without putting everyone's liberty at risk. And what a story we're hearing, by the way. And I just love the beginning where Booth's admonition was to search for the worst alcoholic and the woman at the end of her rope. Go for souls, he said, souls at the end of their rope. And by the way, these battles, George Bernard Shaw, the great intellectual and the great entertainer of his day, see the movie Major Barber. It's a black and white movie. And you'll see that still to this day and even then, the intellectual class and the entertainment class didn't have much in mind for folks who cared about faith and religion. Uh, There was a sort of a condescension there then, and there's still sort of a condescension there now. These stories are important stories. Again, the story about England and America, this is one that's inextricably intertwined. You can't imagine the Salvation Army without Christmas or Christmas without the Salvation Army. They become a part of the DNA of this country. And by the way, they serve so many families in need. And that's families of every kind, every gender, every religion, non-religion, and of course, folks of every sexual orientation too. They don't ask for any of these things when you walk in to the door of the Salvation Army. So give whenever you get a chance to this great organization. More on the story of William and Catherine Booth, the Salvation Army story, here on Our American Story. And we continue here with our American stories and the story of William and Catherine Booth. Let's return to our final installment in this great hour-long story. The persecution of the Salvation Army brought about a new protocol. The Army began to station officers at prison gates. As disheveled men came out, Salvationists would offer help with accommodation and legitimate work. Here's Roger Green. There was a Salvation Army family by the name of the Shirley family who in 1879 uh, went over to the United States. Their daughter was a captain in the Salvation Army. They decided that they were going to begin the work of the Salvation Army, albeit unofficially, in Philadelphia. So at 4th and Oxford, the Shirley family with Captain Eliza Shirley, just a young woman at the time, uh, began to work as Salvationists and opened the work of the Salvation Army in the United States. Uh, 
However, this was not an official opening, and the Shirleys wrote back to William Booth and asked if William Booth would send reinforcements to help to establish the work of the Salvation Army in America. And so William Booth chose George Scott Railton and seven young women uh, for this task. And on March 10th of 1880, George Scott Railton and these seven young women, these seven hallelujah lassies, walked down the gangplank of their ship to the base of the Manhattan, and they opened the work of the Salvation Army officially. By the end of 1883, the Salvation Army was operating in 12 countries, and everywhere it fought an evangelistic war. We are a salvation people, said Booth. That is our specialty. On September 23, 1886, 57-year-old William Booth stepped onto New York's Cunard Pier. By now, the Salvation Army boasted 100 corps in America, manned by 300 officers and over 5,000 soldiers and cadets. On this two-and-a-half-month visit, over 200,000 Americans flocked to hear him speak. At his core, William Booth was an evangelist but he was also intensely practical. The social ministry of the Salvation Army usually did not begin at the instigation of William Booth. Social ministry began as officers and soldiers were working in their own local situations with people and as they had compassion for these people and wanted to aid them and assist them. And so, for example, in 1886, the Salvation Army opened up a home for alcoholic women. There again, not at the instigation of William Booth, but because there were local officers and soldiers in that situation who saw a need and they wanted to meet that need. What Booth did was support these ventures with personnel and funds. Here again is Diane Winston and Colonel Bramwell Booth. William Booth, unlike many of his contemporaries, was not particularly interested in the big issues of the day. Booth only cared about saving people. The army was a religion of action. One evening, on a cold winter's night, William Booth was coming home over a bridge and realized that men were sleeping out in the cold underneath the bridge, finding what shelter they could. And when he first saw my grandfather, Bramwell, he said to him, Bramwell, did you know that men were sleeping under the bridges in this, in this weather? And Bramwell answered, well, I thought everyone knew that, General. And uh, William then said, Bramwell, go and do something. Find a warehouse, put some mattresses on the floor, get a coke stove, and, uh, and look after them a little bit. But mind, no coddling. Here's Roger Green and a quote from William Booth. William Booth was very moved by the compassionate ministry of his officers and soldiers. And in 1889, he wrote one of his most important articles. That article was called Salvation for Both Worlds. William Booth says very clearly that he has to fight not only against the sin of this world, but he has to fight also against the prevailing evils of poverty and idleness and prostitution and alcoholism and so forth in this world. If these people are to believe in Jesus Christ, become the servants of God, and escape the miseries of the wrath to come, they must be helped out of their present social miseries. In 1888, 
Catherine had discovered she had terminal breast cancer. She would continue to write and preach, but after two years, she was confined to bed. Finally, on October the 4th, 1890, at 61 years of age, Catherine Booth, in Salvation Army terminology, was promoted to glory. The following year, in December 1891, Captain Joseph McPhee, an energetic Salvation Army officer in San Francisco, had a goal of providing a free Christmas dinner to anyone who was in need. McPhee borrowed a large crab pot from the Oakland Ferry Landing and hung it from a tripod at the foot of Market Street and posted a sign that said, Fill the pot for the poor. Free dinner on Christmas Day. He collected enough to feed 1,000 people and thus began the now iconic Salvation Army Christmas Red Cattle Campaign. The sounds of bells ringing throughout America has become a very important part of the holiday season. Americans contribute some 100 million to the Army's Christmas Kettle Campaign that provides Christmas cheer to the less fortunate. Kettle donations remain in local communities, supporting year-round services, and the USA Christmas Kettle tradition was too good to remain exclusive and in recent years has become exported to other nations in which the Army serves. William now handed much of the day-to-day -day running of the Army to his son Bramwell and returned to his first love. William began to travel the globe, preaching the gospel. There's a story of him sitting on a railway carriage with uh, Cecil Rhodes, the great South African colossus, uh, the great imperialist, and he says to Cecil Rhodes, um, how's your soul? And Rhodes says, mm, not very well. William Booth puts his hand on his shoulders, bends him over, get on the floor of the carriage and the train, and prays with him. And he would pray with everybody. He would ask everybody, how's your soul? Are you saved? When he was in the presence of the king, he was asked to sign a guest book. And on that guest book, he wrote this, Some men's ambition is gold. Some men's ambition is fame. My ambition is the souls of men. Into his 80s, William Booth would still preach. At one of his last meetings, the old soldier gave his final call to battle. While women weep, as they do now, I'll fight. While children go hungry, as they do now, I'll fight. While men go to prison, in and out, in and out, as they do now, I'll fight. While there is a drunkard left, while there is a poor lost girl upon the streets, while there remains one dark soul without the light of God, I'll fight. I'll fight to the very end. At the age of 83, on August 20th, 1912, the old general who commanded a worldwide army for 53 years was promoted to glory. The Salvation Army announced, the general has laid down his sword. For weeks after William was buried, the rumors spread that Queen Alexandra had come to the funeral in disguise. No one could prove whether the rumor was true or not, but in one sense it did not matter. What mattered 
was that no one thought it strange or unbelievable that a queen might have been standing shoulder to shoulder with the most gaudy and destitute of the attendees. Today, the Salvation Army spans the globe, reaching out to others with the love of God, the courage of their convictions, and the discipline of good soldiers. Raising more than one billion annually, the Salvation Army is now established in 80 countries with 16,000 evangelical centers and operates more than 3,000 social welfare institutions, hospitals, schools, orphanages, homeless shelters, and social service agencies. I'm Greg Hengler, and this is Our American Stories. And great job, as always, to Greg Hengler. And what a story, the story of William and Catherine Booth and the story of the Salvation Army. One billion dollars a year, 3,000 separate organizations. It's really unbelievable. And not a stitch from the government. This is just the generosity of people around the world giving to a great cause. A special thanks, by the way, to the folks at Vision Video for giving us access to their great documentary, Our People, the story of William and Catherine Booth. Check out the full documentary and 1,900 more titles of uplifting, family-friendly videos at visionvideo.com. That's visionvideo.com. And I just love what was said at the end there in William's words. Some men's ambition is gold, and some man's ambition is fame, and mine is souls. And my goodness, what a legacy, what a life lived. And again, give to the Salvation Army. Uh, especially during the Christmas season, but all year round, because they never stop, folks. They never stop. William and Catherine Booth's story, the Salvation Army story, here on Our American Stories.